0: not even sure if sponsoring your own podcast is a thing but we're going to give it a go for the remainder of this series because she can she did has just launched the UK's first ever benefits program curated for and by self-employed women in the UK and so I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about it the new She Can, She Did Benefits programme provides all self-employed women, female founders and freelancers with access to the health and financial benefits that come hand in hand with a corporate career, like pensions, health insurance, gym memberships, eye care, etc, etc, plus a whole host of additional fashion, beauty, well-being, parenthood and lifestyle incentives too, with over 60 plus brands on board and counting, including the likes of Pure Gym, Hiscox, Penfold and Vision express on the more traditional benefits front to the likes of esper bloom and wild higher street to hello fresh and oh mama on the ultimate rewards front for just $5.99 per month you will gain access to a whole host of exclusive benefits and rewards to support both your business and your life which let's face it will become all the more important as we all try and navigate the uncertainty that the coming months present Plus, all members benefit from weekly online events with industry experts at no extra cost too, along with many, many more perks of the programme. Visit shecanshedid.com for more details if you're interested, or of course, feel free to just click on the link in this episode's show notes. I feel like Cheryl when I say the next bit, but here goes. She Can, She Did. Your resilience rewarded. hello everyone and welcome back to series four of the she can she did podcast aka the podcast that shares the honest realities of what female founders in the uk push through behind the scenes warts and all of course to not just launch but run grow and sustain their businesses to date if we haven't met yet i'm fee and i'm the founder of she can she did slash the one asking the questions throughout this chat now, it's not every day that you hear of great British athletes trading grueling fitness training regimes in for the world of app design and entrepreneurship, but that's what Kike on a win day did when she left the world of Javelin behind and launched BYP Network in 2016, a platform based here in the UK that empowers black professionals around the world to connect with each other and global corporations. Having won a whole host of awards, including a spot on the prestigious Forbes 30 under 30 list for the platform, which is often dubbed the LinkedIn for black professionals. This is Kike's incredible story so far. I mean, Kike, I feel like there's so much we've got to discuss because, oh my goodness, I was looking at your accolades earlier. And I'm sorry, the fact that you used to compete for Great Britain as a javelin thrower. Is that what yeah. they're called? Javelin throwers? Yeah, so random. <laughs>
1: it's
0: so random. And I feel like that is 100% the most random background <laughs> to date. So let's dive in. Talk to me about where BYP started and how you kind of stumbled upon launching your own business.
1: Yeah, sure. So my background is in sports, but I've always been very academic as well. So like I got, you know, always an a stars at school, um, but I was also like a national champion in javelin for my age group and, you know, representing the country and things like that. And so I think I was, a I did javelin for like, I think 12 years or so, but at the same time I was, you know, in school. So I did my economics degree at Nottingham um, and then I got a full scholarship to the University of Florida to basically compete in javelin, but then also to do my master's. So that was like such an incredible opportunity and I really enjoyed myself and I met a lot of incredible people out there. Um, I remember just thinking, wow, like, you know, if I never came here, I would never have met all these individuals. So like there were people from different backgrounds. But like what really was so fascinating for me was some of the black students and professionals that I met that were doing like things that I didn't even think we do per se. And it sounds really weird to say, but it's like when you're so shielded or when you don't really get that representation, you don't know what's possible or what's out there. Mm. Um, so, again, I just kind of felt like, wow, if I never came out here, I would never have met this person or that person with all these incredible stories. So when I came back to UK, I was like, well, I wonder how we can like find other people like that in the UK and around the world, because there must be loads of us. And, you know, the media doesn't show that. It just shows one narrative of, you know, negative news and knife crime and low attainment, just always negative. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, my experience showed me that's not true. And obviously I had background in like investment banking as well. Um, so internships, a lot of the internships, I was like the only black person in the room or, you know, on the floor. And with some of these internships, do you get to meet others from other banks as well? So it's just like, how do we find all these individuals? Again, not just investment bankers, but any black student or professional so that we can help each other through the world of work. We can see each other for that kind of role model visibility and we can give back as well. So That's like the long short of how I went from Javelin to launching my own business. But obviously there's other bits as well. Like why I started it as well to so the idea but that's the simplest transition I can give you <laughs>
0: so how old are you at that point when you're back in the UK 23 so I think
1: I registered byp network when I was 24 so like my best was October 6th and I registered it October 16th but I had that idea around the summer so as in I came back in June and then like some point in June I had the idea and then I was kind of thinking about it I did a bit of market research left it for a couple months um, and then thought, okay, let me actually go for it. So that's when I like registered it in in um, October.
0: That's incredible. I mean, given that you were interning for the investment banks, you did your master's in, did you say economics?
1: Uh, no, my master's was in management, under government. In
0: management. I mean, to me studying economics in undergrad and then management for your master's and doing grads internships in investment banking to me that's a trajectory that you were once upon a time correct me if I'm wrong looking at going down that corporate route
1: yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 correct.
0: And so even though you said that, you know, you came back and you had a few months where you just sat on the idea, that's still such a short period of time, especially at that age and, and the fact that you then got on with it. What was it that actually encouraged you to make that leap? Because I, I mean I'm I'm a broken record in this podcast, but I say it all the time. There's such a difference between having those good ideas and then actually going about and taking upon yourself to be the person that puts it into practice. So yeah, what what encouraged it?
1: Yeah, no, great question. I think I was on that trajectory, but I didn't really enjoy investment banking that much. So I didn't necessarily want to go into banking. It's just that it was the easiest looking option for everything I had done in my past, right? Like I had all the internships because I had internships before. So it gets you more internship, you know, but the thing is it could never work with my sport. So I was still doing javelin. It's not like I quit javelin and my mindset was still focused on javelin. I think when I came back, I still represented England and all that stuff. So I just knew I couldn't do investment banking and do javelin. And so when I came back, actually, I got a job in fintech, so financial technology. And it's like everyone was talking about fintech at the time, tech, 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 fintech. So that's actually why I went into that field. And I could see that it was quite flexible. It was a startup. So I really enjoyed that vibe. So actually, I was quite inspired by the fact that I was working in a startup. And even the founders of that startup, their backgrounds weren't that dissimilar from mine. So like the CEO, he had an economics background and did a master's in management as well, was in banking. I was like, oh, we're not that dissimilar, like, you know yeah other than I'm this young black girl and he's like a German white man but I didn't see that I was just like oh. <laughs> I was still like okay cool I'm sure I can do something similar if I wanted to yeah so I was quite motivated by that and then at the same time I had friends who had told the idea to and they just kept coming back like when are you gonna do it when are you gonna do it it's so amazing why have you not done it yet so I have a lot of pressure of like that was a great idea why have you not done it <laughs> (laughs) And so literally I think combining both of that is why I decided to do it. And also I mustn't neglect the fact that I had business background too. So my management course had entrepreneurship modules, marketing modules as well. Um, And also when I was a bit younger, Well in secondary school I did like business studies right for GCSEs and I like launched this business-ish with my friend the clothing line. It never launched so that's why I say ish but it was a clothing line so I had a bit of background in like knowing what not to do. (laughs) (laughs) I think all of that combined is why I was able to just be like all right cool let me just go about and do it and kind of have a blueprint of what I needed to do to get started. Mm. And I always knew it would be a tech platform because you know tech was the future and I'd read books like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and so I was very inspired by all of that. And I kind of felt like, yeah, why not? Why can't I do it? And I think I just really loves Elon Musk in terms of how he just has an idea and he just does it. Like, yeah. He just doesn't care. It's like it could be the craziest idea. That, oh, I'm going to get people into space. Like, you know, And like, what? So all of that was really inspiring for me. And I just felt like, OK, yeah, let me just start where I am. And where I was, was like, my house, my room, using my laptop and just organizing events to get started. Um, and then that became a mailing list. And then I was able to launch an MVP app and stuff. So, yeah.
0: Oh, you just get right ahead. I'm going to break that down a bit. Really quickly though, I think it's worth picking up. It was really interesting what you said about the fact that you had a really good support network holding you to account. And I think it's so powerful about the minute you share that idea with people that you trust, it suddenly becomes something, doesn't it? That they can hold you to account for.
1: I found that quite funny though, because I I wouldn't say Nessie wanted them to hold me to account because it was just an idea. I wasn't saying I wanted to do it or I was the one that was going to do it. So actually it was quite frustrating if you think about it because it's like, okay, I told you that. I didn't say I was going to actually do it. <laughs> and suddenly you find yourself on this journey. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like you're suddenly being held accountable for an idea you had and it's just like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a good support system. And even when I was my first event, I had friends always helping and stuff like that. So yeah, it was very good early days. So in terms of that then,
0: you know, in terms of like starting with the events, Did you start those events with the intention that it would lay some kind of groundwork that would allow you to kind of launch what is now BYP Network? Or was it quite naively thinking, not naively thinking in hindsight, but at the time being quite naive about the whole thing, like jumping in and just seeing where it goes?
1: No. So I always knew that I wanted a tech platform. I always knew because like I said, I knew tech was the future. Yeah. But where I was, I didn't have any connections. I didn't know how to build tech or get into tech per se. So I just started where I could today, which was like, okay, well, I'm trying to connect black professionals. So I guess I can do that first by doing a, an event and sharing my idea and starting that vibe and then building the this. So I always knew that it was going to be what it is today. And even more so like, you know, we're still not where we want to be per se. So yeah, I just started where I could. I think that's always the best advice for people. Start where you are, but just know the bigger vision. And like, don't get bogged down about timing because everyone's just like, oh, I'm not there yet. So no, I knew I knew I wanted a tech platform. I just had no connection. I didn't have. I didn't even know about funding or anything like that.
0: Mm, no, I love that though. I just think like hats off to you for jumping in because I think it's like when people have the end goal, the kind of steps in between sometimes are the things that they're not willing to do to get there. Does that yes. make sense? Yeah. Even that event, though, the reason I focus on these early days is that like you're kind of putting yourself out there. Your pride's on the line. You've got that big vision. And, and like you said, you've got to start somewhere. So with those events, how comfortable was that for you to host an event, for instance? You know, what was it like the evening before your first event or was it something that you were quite happy to do?
1: No, I mean, great question again. Remember, I didn't even want to do it <laughs> like at all. But I had a lot of people holding me to account. And so what happened was that I kind of found the venue quite easily and they didn't require a deposit. It was like, oh, you can just reserve it, which is very rare. So I was like, OK, I might as well just do this. And I kind of just got a flyer made quite quickly and just put social media handles together, registered the company. And you might question, like, how do I know how to do all those things? But again, you know, I did a master's in management and all that stuff. So I had a bit of a blueprint of what needed to be done. Mm. and I think what it was is that I put the event out and I think it sold out in like three days like it was crazy I remember I put it out and it was just tickets 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 and it was charged as well it was like 15 pounds a ticket and we didn't have no like I say we like I didn't have any reputation or no one knew of the company it was just I think the flyer was just really cool it was like meet and mingle you know come and connect with black professionals in the city or something like that and then so before I knew it, it was just like wow like okay this is really happening and again, like I said, I had my friends on the day helping, like, registration and, like, you know, name badges, and, and I knew that I wanted people to have drinks on arrival and have food. Like, I knew the vibe I wanted. It was all about friendship. The idea of BYP was, like, everyone's friends. You come to this event, it's friendly, leave your titles at the door, and I always wanted that from day one, because I'd been to networking events, and it's always very, like, I always say uppity or stush is the word we, we use, yeah. where, like, hi, I'm Kike, I'm a Forbes 30 and a 30, what are you, you know? And yeah, it's like, yeah. no, I'm just a female, it's not that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. It's exactly why I launched the Midweek Mingles, for that exact reason, because it's just like the kind of handshaking stuffiness of some networking event. Yeah, I can completely relate.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, it was, so I was super comfortable. Um, I remember I didn't want to give a speech. My friends were like, go on, give a speech, you have to give a speech. But I am actually, I think I'm actually good at talking or public speaking, but obviously it's still getting yourself outside of that comfort zone to do so. So yeah, we still got the video of today of what I said, and it's still very aligned with everything we're doing now. It was like, VIP Network is so much more than an events company, watch this space, we're going to connect black professionals around the world. So I always had that big vision from day one and understood that this was just the day one. And I knew that it was, you know, I didn't know how it was all going to come together. I just knew that this was the journey I'm on.
0: Absolutely. It's all stepping stones, isn't it? How quickly did things start to, I suppose, progress?
1: Okay. So year one was like events. So I just did, I think I had an event like every six weeks or so. And again, they were always in different venues because I always wanted a different feel. But it was very like tacked in, you know, putting together like events and things like that. Yeah. It took up a lot of energy and it was just me and I was doing the social media and all that stuff. But still I was doing this whilst working and still doing my sport. And then I think about nearly a year later, so the September is when I then launched the app. And then the first month it just like... 3,000 downloads straight away. It got such a good vibe and positivity. But that app was never really the app I wanted. It was just what I could get at that time with like the limited funds that I had and like the limited knowledge that I had. But what was interesting is that that then opened up more doors. So then I was able to, you know, I got a Sky Scholarship. I went on the New Entrepreneurs Foundation business program. And then I also won the Founder of the Future. So it was like in one week, i won like 40,000 pounds or something. This is a few months later after the launch. But it was still within that period of like, oh wow, so she's already done this and that and that. See, I didn't know this was group strapping or figuring out what a market fit. I didn't know any of this. I just did yeah. what I was doing, and so that you know led to a lot of money. And then that's when I went full time. So I left my job. That would have been two years there that I was working. So after a year and a half of doing BIP, I went full time. And then I took another six months of understanding the ecosystem, like fundraising and VCs and angels and all this stuff. And I got quite a lot of offers of accelerator programs, but my gut was like, you need to understand it more. Because, you know, like equity, if you don't understand it, you can give everything away without realising that you've given your whole company away. Or it might sound low, you know, oh, we we only take 4%, but not realising that actually that's too much for what they're offering. So I went through a good amount of learning. And then from that January last year, so this takes us to January last year, that's when I then was able to just close a pre-seed of 150K. I don't know if I'm jumping, so I'll stop there. Oh, I'm going to
0: unpick it. Don't you worry. I'm just listening in all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then last year was a year like we were trying to build tech. <laughs> and I say try because, yeah, it failed miserably. But uh, trying to build tech, was able to have a small team. I brought on a partnership, a head of partnerships. So we were able to experiment with revenue and did really, really well last year in terms of bringing in revenue and also growing the network too. So grew the members a lot. Now we're on over 40,000, near enough, 50. And whereas last year, January, I think we died on like 3,000 or 10,000. So we grew wow. quite, quite a bit, but even now we intend to grow a lot faster. So I think last year, i say last year was discovery year, where we were just kind of figuring things out and, you know, just seeing what works. So we released a podcast last year as well. We had a huge conference. that had about 800 paid black professionals in attendance and a lot of corporate partners. Yeah. So I'd say last year, I'd say last year was the year where we are like, okay, really understanding what we're doing. I mean, now this year, obviously the pandemic and everything, but been super fortunate to fundraise, but also have our platform and do a lot of content during this pandemic.
0: I feel like you're going to get mad at me because I'm going to go all the way back to the first app that you launched, I think, in the September after those events. And you said about how with your limited funds that you had. And I think to me, app... That still equates to some kind of money. So how did you fund that first app that gave you the initial grounds to grow, I suppose?
1: It was just from our event sales. That's incredible. Yeah. So from the get go of BIP, I think my initial investment was like five hundred pounds or something, which I got right back after our first event. And yep. thereafter it was just I was always using the event money to then do the next event. And we were in, I don't know, is a word, was it we had profit, I guess? I don't know, or just good amount of revenue. And so I was able to use that to pay for the app, and luckily, the app cost wasn't high compared to what you find now. The way that the model worked was like you know you pay a thousand pounds up front and then you pay a monthly fee, so it actually was perfect, given my like situation yeah, um, absolutely. yeah, all the money was just from events, so we did very well as in I think we made like gonna say we, but like in that space of just doing events about thirty k revenue or something amazing. I think that's correct. So well, maybe that was a following year. I can't remember, but we had <laughs> money anyway that allowed us to kind of operate on a minimum level anyway as a business.
0: Absolutely. And talk me through your experiences raising investment. You obviously said that you had a few offers, but you were still kind of figuring it out. But in general, in hindsight, can you pinpoint any particular pain points or challenges along the way? And I guess what's your advice for founders that are going through it or plan to?
1: I guess. You know, it's good to get business knowledge. It's something I always scream at. I know there's a lot of people that are like, yeah, just do it, you know, figure it out. But like me joining the Entrepreneurs Foundation, super good. That was additional business knowledge. I was around an ecosystem of other entrepreneurs. I think don't just do it on your own, on your own. Like even if you're a sole founder, that's fine. But make sure you're in the right ecosystems and networks. And also, I think just have confidence in your business, you know, or in yourself. Because in the early days of BYP, I didn't even realize that it was seen as already one of the number one communities in UK or London that does what we do, like black professionals connecting. Um, And why I say that is there was a time where another network tried to scam us of our members, (laughs) you know, like, oh, we can amalgamate, da-da-da, we're stronger together. And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, because, you know, we're here to change the narrative, we can all do it together. But they had bad intentions, right, to really try and steal the members and all this stuff. So I was quite naive in the beginning of what I was building. I knew my ambition. I knew what I wanted to build. But I was easily swayed as well, as in easily swayed on what I was doing or changing of minds. And if you meet someone who's seasoned in the game, it's so easy for them to make you think, oh, maybe I should do this or do that. And it happened to me quite a few times, I must admit. And those are always the lowest points where it's like, I should never have done that or I should never have listened or why didn't I just trust myself? And then you think, oh, I wasted so much time when I could have just done this. I knew what to do. And I think a lot of founders probably face that because you're then getting so much advice as well. I think also be careful of how much advice you get and how much advice you take. Mm. Know what your plan is, know what you want to do. Any advice, you put it on the right and then you get back and look at it and decide. But don't just accept it then and there and then change up your whole plan. Because that happened to me quite a few times. And also talent as well. So like making sure you've got someone who's done it before, I'd say, as in versus hiring someone that's never done the role that you need, go for someone who's done it before and they can come and say, oh, I could just do this and can kind of run with it. I think I've made a mistake in the past. Where I've got people who doesn't have any experience in it or maybe very minimal. And so actually didn't go so well because it's like, well, they don't really have any ideas or they're still figuring it out. And I think for a startup, you can't really have that. Maybe big companies, but for startups, you need people who've kind of done something before.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think I remember Olivia Wallenberg, founder of Livia's, when I was speaking to her about that, she'd just started hiring people much older with, you know, years and years of experience. And she was saying that like how it was the best thing that she could have done. She was worried about taking that leap, I suppose. But that wealth of experience is worth the extra money because they kind of just propel you further, don't they? I think it's just so incredible to hear about it from someone that's done it like so well in terms of it seems like such a success story. Did it feel like that at the time? Because, you know, like you said, with the offers, you know, you hear such horror stories from the fundraising journeys.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, 100 percent. I think, you know, what? firstly, as a black female, it's it, I don't want to say the word impossible, but it's just so difficult to raise funds. I think the stats always say it, 0.2% of black females have raised money or in America, there were like only 35 black women have ever raised over a million dollars. You know, really, really bad stats when you hear it. Mm. We know there's already female problems. I think 4% of females raise funding.
0: I think it's for every pound of VC investment less than a penny or 1% goes to female founders. Something like
1: that, right? And that's female. And then if you put black as well, yeah. so it's even worse. So I talk about stats, but I don't let stats affect me. Very interesting thing to note, because I guess even on this fundraising, I'm like, oh, you know, black founders don't get money, da, da, da. but I know, okay, I've got money, or <laughs> well, I'm fundraising. But it's not about me. It's about the person behind me or the next generation. I don't believe we should have this kind of, you must be black excellence, or you must be super amazing to be able to have access to these funds, when there's others that just, they know someone and they get given the funding straight away. Mm. So for me, it's like I have not necessarily struggled per se. I have in a sense that like, it would still be easier if I looked a bit different. But I think I've proven enough, right, to get funding. I mean, we've just raised 8.50 by crowdfunding. Amazing. Which is like one of the largest leaders have had on their platform ever. And we're also looking to get VC funding. So we're still in conversations at the moment. We hope to get some funding. If we don't, we will just keep it moving, right? And we're a revenue generating company anyway. But again, shows what we're talking about, about how difficult it is to get VC funding as a minority founder. So I think those are horror stories from other founders I've never been able to raise or just not even bothering. Then there's others I've found within other ecosystems. So I'm part of different entrepreneurship networks of like investors stealing people's companies because their equity was just too low now. And so people could take over the company or not getting along with their investors and things not going so great. You know, you really do have to weigh it up, and I think you do have to like who invests in you. So even in my journey right now, like I said, we're in conversation with a few VCs, but in my head, I already know, like, hmm, I don't really think I want to take money from you if you want to give. Because I think the relationship does matter. Yes, you true. know, not all money is the same money. You know, you want to get real strategic money. So, yeah, there's a lot of horrors, and I think a lot of people think that fundraising equates to success, and that's just not true. I think 95% of all businesses die. That's why, BYP, we have such a focus on making sure we are revenue-generating. I mean, I definitely cannot hold on to, oh, don't worry, we'll raise again. It's not um, sustainable. Yeah, it's not sustainable and it's not a guarantee. Yeah, there's loads of horror stories. And I think the news only shows the good news when it comes to founders, not anything else. But when it comes to founders, it's like, this person raised 10 million, this company's worth a billion. Duh, duh, duh. But they didn't show us the 95% of companies that just died yesterday. So,
0: yeah, all the ups and downs along the way. Like, it's yeah, like, exactly. talk about them. <laughs> No, it's so true. You obviously mentioned that you started hiring and obviously Head of Partnerships was like the first one. What's your, I guess, experience been as a boss and a leader? Because I always think it's one thing having this idea and you're solely responsible for it, but then actually taking people on and being responsible for, I guess, their livelihoods, their well-being, et cetera, et cetera, it's a completely different story. So how have you found that aspect?
1: I definitely think it's such a journey, you know, like in terms of that aspect, I'm definitely like, you know, I'm a founder and all that stuff. And it's like when you're now a CEO as well, or someone who has to like bring in more people to grow your vision, it's always very difficult because it's like, okay, make sure your hiring processes are right. But then when it's just you or someone else hiring, it's like, oh, I like their personality they're in. And then they start and they might (laughs) not be very good or they're not actually the right fit or you hire the right person and they're incredible. And you're like, wow, I really see the difference here. I hired a head of partnership and she was so good that I made a co-founder like a year later. So it just shows the differences of what you bring in. And I think it is important to bring people in. Like it does make a difference for the business. Founders always get scarred by it because every founder has had a story about employees or just having to hire and retain and stuff like that. But I think it's one of those where it's just part of the process. It's part of the package you get with being a startup. So it's been interesting, but it's been fun as well. Like our team right now is so incredible. And We now have a hiring manager. So it's, you know, there's proper processes in place and, Yeah no I'm actually really enjoying it and I think when you've got people that you really really gel with or they just do great work it's like wow you really did this it sounds weird it's like you're always just shocked by the output like wow that was incredible I didn't have to do that. It is nice when you see your plate getting smaller because actually you've given these out and now you have more time for other things.
0: absolutely.
1: Where normally I've just I'm always so swamped. I can't say I'm not swamped because obviously it means I just have to do something else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No I can imagine. How do you find that getting that balance right between, I suppose, growing and nurturing a team that's close and gets on, but also ultimately you're the boss? Do you know what I mean? I guess a lot of the women I've spoken to, there's that struggle to, you want to be liked, but also being boss.
1: I love that question it's such a hard one it really is because there's like no winning formula you can be so nice that then they take you for granted and then they don't respect you in a way because it's like oh we're all fr- like you know we're all friends so you're like oh can you do xyz and you're like no and it's like oh, what <laughs> <laughs> you no know, no honestly or you know the opposite because you really want to be nice you're like super super crazy which you would be but then they get kind of entitled and think oh it's because of me that this business is where it is today and it's like well not what what <laughs> Yeah. Or you have the kind of opposite where it's just like I'm just hands off in that area. It's not my area. I'm going to be here. But then it seems like okay, you're not invested in the person. So it is a consistent like way up all the time, and it's trying to figure out what works. And I think actually what I've now found what works is having that operations person who is in between in a way. So it's like you're still doing it, but you got the operations person who handles all that kind of area and stuff. I think there has to be a separation. Like you're CEO XYZ, but you're not doing all the other stuff, the HR stuff, and 360 reviews or you shouldn't be the one doing that someone else should but you can have catch up calls with people mm. honestly it's a learning curve and I know and funny you say that because I know again I'm part of a lot of founders community everyone has the same problems with trying to figure out the balance
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely that's the thing I think it's like it never goes away you always say or hear advice from founders like way down the line and it's like that kind of the minute you think that you've nailed it it instantly becomes a problem because this whole journey is constantly evolving, isn't it? And you're always learning new things. Looking back, Kike, like in terms of right from the beginning and those early days from the events right through to now, what have you found to be the hardest part of being your own boss? Like what have you struggled with most?
1: I don't know, if I'm honest, like struggled with most. I don't know. I'm such a hard worker in general. So as in being my own boss, I'm just working regardless. I enjoyed doing that like when I look at it I've enjoyed it I think it's such a fun journey there are highs and lows but I think that I'm the kind of person when there's a low I'm like oh that means there's going to be a high soon (laughs) yeah yeah no it's true and and I've uh my intuition is very good these days as well so like even us doing the crowdfund it was super last minute but I was like we should do a crowdfund right now like now's the time to do it with everything going on there's blackout day and you know we are here as a real solution let's do it and we have like two weeks to prepare where normally it's eight weeks or us deciding to do that conference and it was huge and it was really good and it was super stressful. But it was like, yeah, we should do it. That's something that would be great to do and it'll be great for BIP, no matter how difficult it is. So I feel like we're always challenging ourselves to the next level and like the ambition level. And I think being my own boss has allowed that, right? Because I'm the one setting, this is the standard. This is what we're going to do. One thing we're now doing is like processes and all that stuff that kind of gets missed by a lot of founders. But it's super important for scaling. But I can't say what's been the hardest thing, to be honest. The journey is super fun. And I think that, no, there's nothing that I'd say is the hardest.
0: (laughs) No, that's good. That's inspiring. And I know what you mean. Like it's always for every bad day, it means that a good one's coming. I completely can wholeheartedly relate to that. Has anything ever gone wrong, though? Or just trying to think, have you ever had any negative feedback? And if so, you know, how have you handled that?
1: Yeah, no, honestly, great. Sometimes we get random entitled emails is how we call it because you have to respond very well. So entitled would be something like, I expected you to reply to me yesterday, you know, in that kind of manner. Yeah. I remember once someone must have applied for a role And she didn't hear back within like two days. And then she sent some long email about, I should have heard back from you guys. Instead, your founder's winning awards at Parliament. It just sounded like such a jealous email. We could only laugh at the email. Like, who's... (laughs) You know, so we just sent an email back, like, you wouldn't expect this from Deloitte or PwC to get back to you within two days of making an application. Why do you think, because we're a black company, we should respond to you the next day? That's not how it works. There's loads of applications. And also, she could have been the best applicant and we were going to funnel her in. But now it's like, well, we don't want you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we had stuff like that. Also, there was a time we were so swamped in terms of our inbounds, like especially with corporate demand. So my head of partnerships just been missing emails, for example, which isn't good as well. So it was like, okay, this is why we need our processes in place because we're missing like vital emails here. Um, So feedback in that sense, like, hi, I contacted head of partnerships a few times, didn't hear back. And that's not good as well. So a lot of our negative feedback is from processes, which completely makes sense. Whereas everything else that's positive is just from BYP in terms of our communications, mostly communication like social media, events, our platform. I say, yeah, anything that's negative is normally process-based. Process or, or our platform, like I said, we been the tech platform. That was so buggy. It just was not the right platform. And we ourselves knew it needed to be in the bin. So, yeah. Again, I just look back at that like, yeah, it's part of the journey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I love that. In terms of you as a founder and just generally like the kind of work-life balance, inverted commas, how do you, or what does downtime look like, I suppose? How do you balance work and play?
1: That's a great question. I think last year I had a really good balance <laughs> or pre-pandemic. So like I always had my weekends pretty much. And like every month I'd go to like spa or something to just rest and relax. And I traveled quite a bit last year, like I had proper time off and stuff. So last year was actually really calm for work-life. This year, you know, post-pandemic, I can't say I have really had that. I can't even pretend. I've been working pretty much every day. There was just so much to do as well. And obviously the fundraiser as well, needing to hire and all that stuff. So I'd say, yeah, at the moment, there is no such thing as work-life balance. Last year there was, but I'm sure there will be again. I think you just have to go through periods where you have to just put your head down and just be working. And then there's periods where you it's not as much or as intense. Mm. um so yeah but normally it's just spas obviously haven't been able to do much of that i had an annual leave a couple of weeks ago i went to brighton for the week and just sunbathed and relaxed so it really is for me it's just i, I do work quite a bit if i'm honest but i like working so it's not a negative for me um no. but then if i have got downtime i'm normally just with like friends and family and stuff like that
0: yeah no relate to that in terms of you mentioned the pandemic how has byp been affected by covid and How did the business model adapt if it had to? When COVID was unravelling, I did a daily series for the first seven weeks of COVID that basically looked at from literally lockdown right through how businesses were adapting in the moment. But how did you see it play out from the panic in March? Because I always think it's so easy to forget that. But you know, there were so many unknowns in March. And then obviously as things started, we all started to adapt to the new normal. How did it play out for BYP?
1: Yeah, like literally exact same. As soon as it happened, we put out so much content. So we had like weekly Instagram lives, we had loads of webinars, our blogs like rocketed. I think we had like a hundred blog pieces. Everything we were just doing was just non-stop. Our social media, posting a lot, engaging a lot. Our members grew, I think we grew like 7,000 members in that time. That's why we're close to 50k. We also had a new platform, which was really good because then we could really work on that and making sure that's the platform we're scaling. So weirdly enough, it was twofold. It was initially at the beginning, like corporate demand slowed because it was very much, we, we don't know what's going on. We need to freeze hiring because we're so uncertain. But then obviously Black Lives Matter happened in the George Floyd situation, which was very hard for us as a company and individual members, Mm -hmm. but also for our network as well. And we were very much there for them again, like I said, with the amount of content we produced, um, webinars, speaking about the situation, what we can do, what's next. Um, And our demand skyrocketed as well, as you can imagine, in terms of the amount of inbounds that we got. That was a period where we just, you know, our processes wasn't cut out for that. And so for us, it was very much kind of like, it just changed 360 of like, okay, wow, the demand is insane. Our offerings still pretty much stay the same um, in terms of the job board, um, the webinars that we offer, the blog pieces, it pretty much stay the same. But a lot of these companies now, D&I budget used to be a separate budget to the left, you know, like not very much. Whereas now a lot of companies seem to put it into their recruitment budgets. So it's now actually just part of it. It's not separate. It's as important. Yeah. Um, we've really seen that difference. I think, yeah, we were very reactive. Our aim was to survive, but we actually ended up thriving. And obviously, we also raised the crowdfunding in this period as well and hired people. So we actually, if I'm honest, have been like fine. So we're super grateful for that. But then it's further proof for us that, yeah, we've got a great business here and we just need to keep going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When the Black Lives Matter, when it peaked again over summer and obviously the ongoing work, when there's so many people looking to your business for answers, how do you manage that responsibility? Is it something that you're comfortable with? Do you rise to it? You know?
1: Yeah, yeah we, we completely rose to it because that is our business. Our business is helping black professionals around the globe. So we were best placed for this. It's not like we have to brainstorm hard about what we should do. It's kind of very automatic for us. Yeah. We know what our members need ASAP. They also tell us what they need. Let's put this on. Let's give them this. Let's connect them with this. Let's you know, talk to the corporates and see what they're doing. Um, you know, We called out some people who didn't put out statements or any kind of anything for their community and we had a lot of members telling us that no one in their company has even messaged them or said anything to them mm. so we kind of became that voice in a way and we we are really focused on that as one of our eight values is like we are here to be a voice for black professionals so we do take that very seriously in terms of you know we do need a voice and we do need to be quite collaborative as a community so we completely rose to it and that's what i mean by we thrived versus going silent and hiding no we we added more content than ever and you know more ability to network than before And I also think any
0: situations like that, I think the realities of being a brand owner that has a voice, you realise what that actually means. Do you know what I mean? And it's not shying away from owning that voice and stepping up. And if you say that you are looking out for black professionals,
1: being that. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine if we went silent in that period. (laughs) And people see it as well. Like it's not a case of we go silent and no one will notice. It will be very evident. You can tell. You know, it, it was evident for me on like others who went silent. It was like, where I'm confused. I have not heard a peek from any of these people. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I even had to message some people like, hi, I haven't heard anything. Like, oh, I didn't know what to say. Well, why don't you know what to say? Yeah. This is your area. Not to be me, but it is very much like people are looking to you. We can't be here glossy, glossy in, you know, easy times. And then hard times, it's like we're nowhere to be seen. And I think that's again why it's, it's testament to what we've built as a company because we were able to thrive versus die or survive. So for us, yeah, our mission is really much there to change the Black narrative and it's never changed. And the vision is strong and my passion is strong and the team's passion is strong. So this was something that was only going to make us stronger and make us kind of react to it and really give to our community. And I think, yeah, I'm more empowered and focused than ever to just make sure we can change the narrative. I love that. I mean, to 30 Under 30... The FT
0: listed you in top 100 fame leaders in tech in the UK. When you look at all the accolades and look back on the past few years, you know, what have you learned about yourself? Because they're really decent credentials, you know? So what's it taught you about yourself this whole journey?
1: The thing that's so funny, what I always have to say to people is like, accolades don't, they just don't mean much to me, if I'm honest. They never have. And I've been a It sounds weird to say I've been an award-winning person from, like, age 13 because I was an athlete. So I think people don't realise that. As an athlete, I was winning national competitions all the time, regional competitions, representing Great Britain, um, getting A stars. So it sounds, like, really weird to say, like, I've always been a high achiever. Yeah, no, not at all. So accolades have never, like, done anything for me because I'm not doing it for that. It's because I do so much, like, good work is what I'd say, that the accolades come. Like, for example, this crowdfund, people will be like, wow, you've smashed records. You? You've now won this accolade for best crowdfund ever, let's say. It's like, that wasn't an accolade we were seeking. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to win best crowdfund ever, you know? And I think that's the best way to describe this journey. I think one thing all of this has taught me is just how ambitious I am and how much I'm just never distracted because I see a lot of this stuff as distraction because I could be like, oh my God, I'm a Forbes, 30, 30, I've got this accolade. I don't really need to do too much anymore. Like, you know, I can stop. But it's very much like, well, no, this is all good and well, and I haven't really even started. So what are we going to achieve when we actually, you know, get started and BYP is really what I want it to be? That's exciting because if we're already winning all of this and we haven't done as much as I'd like us to do, the future is very exciting. So that's really my mindset. So people have to remind me, like, Kike, do you celebrate? <laughs> <laughs> what we have now, we definitely have team socials and stuff like that to celebrate every month about everything that's going on. But, yeah, no, it's just, it's just showed me that I'm still a very focused person.
0: Yeah yeah i love that so much it's so true i remember i mean it's not the 30 under 30 list by any means but i remember when she can she did was listed in forbes i remember literally not knowing the article was coming and it was on a friday afternoon and i just looked at my phone and twitter popped up with this thing saying it was in forbes and i remember just being like oh that's amazing but then you actually think like god it's no way near what i thought when i pictured she can she did in forbes it wasn't at all the way it happened and you soon realize with accolades or like press coverage or whatever it is that it is just a feature right and then it's kind of like that the hard work continues you're not where you want to be yet so it's just like buckle up and keep going yeah it's an interesting process going forward then you obviously mentioned there that it's not where you want it to be yet what does byp look like in your mind in 10 20 years time
1: Ooh, oh, 10, ten years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking next year. Like, <laughs> I mean, PRP is here to, like I said, change the black narrative. Technically, we shouldn't have to exist in 10 years' time. Technically, that's the truth, right? We should just be integrated with every other platform now because actually companies can find black talent quite easily. It's there. You know, there's no excuses anymore. There are black senior leaders in companies. There's representation to the right percent in companies. The right percent of people are getting the funding that they deserve. There's no unconscious bias training because there's no more unconscious bias. That's the ideal world, right? And that's our ideal solution that BYP shouldn't have to exist. And what that means is, you know, like I said, changing the black narrative It shouldn't be someone interviewing someone and thinking, oh, yeah, they can't get this. You know, they're not going to be right for the job. They should be thinking, oh, my God, this person is probably going to be excellent. (laughs) It's the opposite. Well, I don't even want to say the word excellent, but it's the opposite thought process. I'm really kind of ensuring that next generation are set up well, you know, that they don't go through the things that we've gone through and the battles that we've gone through. So for us, yeah, BYP technically shouldn't exist in 10 years' time. But if it does exist, it's still just something that's really connecting Black professionals to mentors and corporations, and we really want to break down the elitism in the UK. Essentially, because it's such a elitist structure, and we've seen that with exam results. I know they've cancelled it now, and they've made it go back to predicted grades. But that in itself showed us their views of people from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So for me, and that's obviously everyone. It's not just black people. It's white. It's Asian. When I grew up in Dagenham, so we had a lot of white people that didn't necessarily go to university. So for me, it's that whole social mobility element. And I think you don't know what you don't know. If I was a kid at school, state school, I didn't know there's all these organizations and opportunities and that I need confidence building as well and all this stuff. Or I need to be doing internships, but there should be better connections to these state schools. You know, we are already here in the world of work. Why are we not all mentoring someone in state schools or something? My whole thing is breaking down those barriers and breaking down those elite structures and having organizations stop having to put degrees as a requirement for example like yeah. why it has to be a requirement or stop saying if you didn't go to oxbridge or russell group you can't even apply yeah so that's the ideal world for me it's like breaking down these structures that exist and if BIP can do that that's even more powerful because then it's like well our fight isn't as much because at least those barriers are down
0: No, it's so true. And it's like, I was literally just on a call before this one. And it's so funny, the more you look into it, the more you see those barriers. So the more you educate yourself on how the barriers work and what barriers exist and understanding your privilege fingerprint, all of that kind of stuff, the more you see it literally every facet of everyday life. And it's just kind of just saying to the previous guest, you know, it's one of those things that it's almost designed to be so overwhelming when you look at it, that you feel like, God, there's so much that needs to be done. Yeah. But actually, we need to roll up our sleeves and collectively work together. The sooner we kind of get on with it, hopefully you can kind of start knocking things down a bit and trying to make some progress. I see where you're coming from completely there.
1: Yeah, the whole A-level thing really, really got me upset and angry because it's just like, that's just such a slap in the face. It's so obvious what was done Mm. that it was like, I can't believe it. Yeah, And again, it's very much like, doesn't that negate everything we're trying to build? That's an extra barrier. So I'm happy that it's been taken down now, but it's very much still like the fact that was even a thing is what we should be concerned about.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Kike, going forward then, I always ask, what would your advice be for anyone listening to this right now that I suppose is in the stage that you were in the event stage and actually, I feel like you're speaking to me here as well. So, your advice for someone like me that's in those early days stages and is looking to get to the next level, I suppose, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, great. So, if you're in the very early stages, you're doing some events or you're putting some things out and maybe it's not being seen as much, or maybe it is, but you're trying to think what's next, look for business programs, look for competitions. They're very tedious to apply, but if you get just the one, it does make a difference. And also, they are validation as well. So I always say like, you know, as you're doing this, be looking for the ladder. I, was, I always call it a ladder, like BIP, we're doing stuff, it's going pretty well, but we're like, hmm, what next? And then something just falls into our lap. And then it's like, oh, here we go, next jump. Yeah. I think that's what you should be doing. So like, how can you take your platform or your business to the next level? So looking at like, okay, this is where I want to be and you work backwards and then you're really actively trying to find that. So let's say something's working. out. So for example, our events were going well. I didn't have to launch the app, right? I could have just kept doing the events until now. Loads of companies do that. But yeah. I, I knew I wanted a tech platform. I knew I wanted a global solution. I knew it was bigger than that. So I think having that ambition and believing in it is what's key because things will fall into your lap. And it sounds weird. It might just be you're scrolling through the timeline and this opportunity pops up. You're like, oh, my God, this is perfect for me and what I'm doing. And that's an important thing to state because some people don't realize that. The graft is great and you do need to keep grafting, but you need to be looking for that ladder. So even if it's that individual that might be able to give you access to things or give you advice that you didn't know you needed. That's the advice. That's what I definitely say. And that's what happened with us. You know, like I said, we had events and then I launched a MVP app and that was me searching, searching, and then me just seeing on Dragon's Den the person I needed (laughs) randomly. And then still trying to figure out, okay, what's next? I've got this app. It's not necessarily what I want. How do I move forward? And then me applying for all those things. So it's very easy for me to tell you how the journey went, but I didn't do it on my own per se. I did it on my own in terms of as a founder, but I made sure I went to seek the additional help that I needed. Mm, yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think that that's where when people say, you know, people are so lucky to get to where they are. I'm always like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> because you actively went about creating those opportunities. Do you know what I mean? Even if the ladder kind of appeared, I feel like you weren't just sat on your bum, you were looking for it. And then you took the initiative to apply, put the work in and off you went, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's really up to the individual and their willpower and their ambition as well and how much they believe in it so random like earlier I was just laughing in the sense of thinking of you know let's say VCs that have said no because in my head I'm never upset I'm like oh wow I feel for you <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you really just messed up there sorry sorry that you're not investing I you know and
0: <laughs> um, no but I I remember listening to such a good TED talk that basically like really changed my opinions on sales and stuff and fundraising and it was really like kind of that switching the narrative and realizing that it's a game and also realizing that what you are offering there's so much potential there for them yeah. those no's do become easier to swallow because it's like it's their loss kind of thing
1: no, but honestly it's not even one of those mindsets where you're just trying to tell yourself that but you're secretly crying it's one of those ones like wow I remember one VC got back finally and like they took a while to kind of just tell us and then I literally emailed like oh my god amazing thank you so much it was more like yes thank you for letting me know it's a no yeah, it was just like thank you for telling me. Like I needed that information. Yeah, and I think that's very important because if you really believe in what you're building, someone saying no should not upset you. It's more like okay, well, watch yeah, just. To the next one. <laughs> okay, watch us grow. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I love that so much. I mean, Kike, I always end with some statements. So if I start, I'd like you to finish them, please. So number one is being my own boss means doing what I want. <laughs> absolutely. When it's not quite going to plan, my advice would be to
1: reassess the plan.
0: Reassess the plan, indeed. If I could describe myself as a businesswoman, I'd say that I am. Just focused. Absolutely. If I could go back to day one of my business, I'd tell myself. Oh, that's
1: a hard one. <laughs> I'd tell myself to start looking into the entrepreneurship world from there, like the ecosystem, start learning about fundraising and just all that stuff. Because I think that would have saved me maybe a year.
0: Yep love that. And very lastly, I want my legacy to be that.
1: A fund, a black generational fund that starts with a billion pounds minimum.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. I have no doubt that that's 100% the legacy you're going to leave. Now you've said it, I feel like, yeah, you strike me as a sort of person that's going to go for it and make sure that happens. So
1: yeah, so going
0: to be exciting to watch. <laughs> for having me. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it, of course, it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind, as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode.